Holy God, our creator, we give you thanks for the gift of life, the gift of creation. Holy God, our redeemer, we thank you for the gift of salvation. How you gave your only one and one and only son to live and die for our sins. And so this morning we pray that you would fill our heart with thanks and gratitude and that you would make us like you, generous people who give their lives for the sake of the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray, amen. You may be seated. Take hold of the life that really is life. I don't know about you guys, but I really love life. Like, I really like to, to live. It's like a thing I enjoy. And I've been fortunate to have a really good life. I was fortunate to have a really good childhood. And I can, you know, we have these memories. I remember when I was probably around eight years old, I got my first new bike. So the first bike I learned to ride on must have come from the 50s or the 40s, I don't know. But I think it was made out of cast iron. So let's just say it was really heavy. It was blue. And then the tires, they didn't inflate. They were like solid rubber. Um, and so you can imagine how comfortable and so how hard it must have been to learn and push and ride a bike like that. But somehow that's how I started off in the world. And then for Christmas, I got this brand new bike, a really amazing bike. I'm sure it came from Kmart. Uh, but I could just remember how much lighter and how much fun and just the feeling of riding down the street on that bike, right? That feeling of life. And I love school. I can remember walking in the school and just feeling high on life, right? And we have seasons in life where we feel like we're really living, like we just feel alive. And then I've also known seasons in life where I don't feel so much alive. I am alive, but it doesn't feel like I'm really living it's not that same high on life feeling. And so this morning when I read words from a wise person like the Apostle Paul, that encourages me to take hold of the life that is really life. It causes me to stop, take a moment, and listen in to what this person might be saying. Interestingly, Interestingly for Paul, taking hold of the life that is life has something to do with generosity. This morning, we get to have the joy of reflecting on the core Christian value of generosity. And before we do, I just want to recognize that this topic for some of us is super, super easy to talk about. Like when we hear the word generosity, it fills our hearts with joy. It just feels something that comes easy to us. And then others of us, not so much. And I think a lot of that would depend on our formation. It's possible that some of us grew up in a home where it's not that your parents, your family was especially stingy or trying to be. You just didn't think much about generosity. Like, you know, just like a lot of American people just trying to like live their best life, right? Pursue happiness. And sure, you would share with a neighbor if they came knocking on your door for some sugar or something, right? Like you're a nice person. But it just, it wasn't in your head that 
basically, you know, um, how I spend my money and how I share my money might have an impact on others and even how that might have had an impact on you. So I think some of us might have been raised in, in families or in a culture where weren't especially thoughtful about generosity. And then there might be another group of us that we were raised in a community where they're always talking about generosity, maybe a church, but in that church setting, they were particularly either manipulative about money or at least legalistic. Maybe you grew up in a church where the leadership pressured people to give in ways that might make you feel uncomfortable. The same artist who wrote the song titled, It's All About the Benjamins, also wrote the lyrics, broken glass everywhere. If it ain't about the money, Puff just don't care. And some people think the church is like Puff, right? Like it only cares about the money. And who could blame them? Back when we used to have cable television, you would flip through the channels, right? Anybody remember this, cable? And you'd flip through the channels, and almost every time it lands on some Christian TV program, it's almost always some pastor that's talking about money, trying to get you to give them money, trying to get you to mail in money to them or, or whatever, right? And I think a lot of folks, maybe that's all they know about church, is when they see this on TV, these folks asking them for money. And for this, we can thank God and for Netflix that we don't have cable anymore. I'm just kidding. I know some of you guys still have cable, right? We're not making fun of you this morning, or at least we're not trying to be mean in it. <laughs> I've never been a part of a church where it's all about the money, but I know they exist, and so I'm trying to name it for you this morning, and I want to say to you that if you have been the victim of an abusive, manipulative religion regarding generosity or any other topic... I pray genuinely that you find healing. I also want to suggest that the healing that you need to find can only be found in community. That not talking about money actually isn't going to lead to your healing, but that finding some kind of community where they're able to embrace generosity and embrace money for the good purposes that it was made for, and they're able to talk about it in ways that are healthy, I think that is actually the kind of place where you're going to find healing. And then maybe you weren't raised in a manipulative church, but some of us maybe just a legalistic church. You were formed somewhere in a church where they told you exactly how much you had to give, and if you didn't give a certain amount, you weren't a good Christian. And so maybe some of us associate generosity with guilt. And if that is you this morning, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to be free. He wants to free you from a spirit of legalism and guilt surrounding generosity. And if you have been legalistic with money, I want you to know that as a Christian, you are completely free and that giving should be done cheerfully and from the heart and never based out of fear and guilt. And then there is at least another group, there's probably several more groups of us that for whom conversations about generosity are actually really easy. And I'm thankful to be in this category 
My parents weren't perfect by any means. There's all kinds of things I would have done different and even would believe different from them. But the one thing I am super grateful about my upbringing is that I had very generous parents. They gave to the church. They gave to people in need. They were open-handed people. And so having been raised in that environment, for me, generosity is something that for me is just a no-brainer. In the same way that I would have no qualms talking with someone about why they should brush their teeth twice a day, it's just a good idea, right? It just leads to the good life, it leads to health and all that things. And I feel the same way about generosity. It's not a scary word for me. It's like, yeah, it's like brushing your teeth. It's just, it's the better life. It's the way we want to live. And so this morning, my prayer for you is if you haven't had the fortunate experience of me, haven't been exposed to cheerful givers who have a happy relationship with their money, they enjoy it, and they also are willing to freely give it away as they are freely received. My prayer is that you meet someone like that and that you get to spend some time with them, whether it's here in this congregation or somewhere else, that you could meet some people like this and that they can model and share their life of freedom with you. This morning, we're going to focus in on the passage from 1 Timothy 6. This is Paul, an apostle, writing to Timothy. This is Paul's disciple, and he is writing words of encouragement. He is like coaching him as he does his pastoral duties in the city of Ephesus. And it's evident that there are some false teachers that have been among the Ephesians that have been teaching them things that aren't that great. And Paul has a long list of not so nice things to say about them. And at the end of the list actually is verse five, which is the verse just before our lectionary reading this morning. It probably won't be on the screen, but it ends this way. These false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, the gospel is a way of making money. Godliness is a means of gain. And then verse six He's going to riff off of that idea. Of course, there is great gain in godliness, but not like they think, godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing in the world and we can take nothing out. And if we have food and clothing, that will be enough. But for those who want to be rich and fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Here, Paul is describing the Christian virtue known as simplicity. And we have seen Christian writers talk about the virtue of simplicity all throughout the ages. Interestingly enough, there is a parallel similar movement right now in our times that's secular called minimalism. And it's not like architecturally minimalism, it's like digital minimalism. Like, I'm gonna get rid of that uh, smartphone because it actually isn't making me happier, right? I don't know if you guys read books by people like Cal Newport. These are really good, really good stuff. And it really is a good compliment to some of the stuff that, well, the church has been saying for like a really long time. I remember when I was a teenager, I was at a youth conference when a speaker asked the question, I wonder if some of you will live simply so that others can simply live. 
And at the time, it was something that really hit home with me. And at the time, it still does hit home with me. What if, by the way I live my life, could actually give another person an opportunity to actually live? What an amazing thought. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we will have enough. Now, what I want you to know is that Paul is writing this in the Mediterranean. It's not the South. They don't have our heat. They don't have our our humidity. I'm sure if Paul were writing today, he would say, we need food, we need clothing, we need air conditioning. And that will be enough, friends. That's the only three things you need in this life, okay? And if the Lord has provided you with those, I think it's all we need. I don't know about you, but almost in every season of my life, I need to be reminded that it's the stuff that doesn't really make me happy. I go through seasons when I embrace simplicity and I kind of simplify my life and I kind of declutter things a little bit, a little less focused, but somehow these things start creeping in again, right? The possessions and the subscriptions and the technology, the time-saving and life-improving devices, they begin to once again accumulate. Sometimes I wonder if you wonder how I wonder about my own life, that we are working longer and longer hours to provide for our children all the stuff that we think they might need, and if one day we might discover that what they needed all along was us, not what was left of us at the end of the day or the end of the week talking about the simple life. The opposite of the good and generous life that God has planned for us is a life that is focused on accumulating possessions at the expense of others and at the expense of our own souls. And so Paul is simply telling Timothy, don't fall into the trap of pursuing wealth or making, or making money out to be the end game. Now, this is the word of God for the people of God. And it's a letter written to Timothy, but it's a letter written also for us. And so in every word in this letter, we have something to receive. But there is also a way in which these words are especially meant at certain people that most of us aren't here today. First and foremost, what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is to not be like those other religious leaders that are trying to do this for money. So this is first and foremost a word to people like me. It's first and foremost a word to pastors not to be focused on on gain and accumulating possessions and don't go out and preach the gospel um, for, for unwarranted gain, right? And then secondly, Paul is speaking to another group of people. It's the people who are not yet rich. And that's why it isn't specifically about us this morning. We've talked about this before, but we'll talk about it again. Most of us would not fit into this category, at least in the way Paul is thinking about it, and at least the way on our current global scale, how most folks in the world would measure wealth. So if your net worth is more than $10,000, 
which doesn't seem like a lot, I know. If you own your own vehicle, if you live in a home with electricity, clean running water, and yes, air conditioning, if your kids have access to an educational system that leads them into a decent US college or university, then you're already in the rich category in the kinds of terms which Paul was thinking about when he wrote this. And I'm pretty sure probably all of us sitting here would be in the well-off category for, for instance, some of our friends that we were visiting down in Honduras a few months ago there, down there with Susie McCall. I would guess if we asked some of those friends, said, how do you think about these people? If they live a certain way and they had these, oh, those people have the good life. And all I would be describing is kind of like your normal life. And so the chances are we don't really fit into this category. So the good thing is we can hop on down to verse 17 where Paul starts talking about us, the rich folk. Verse 17, as for those in the present age who are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. A few things here. Remember back in verse seven, Paul was reminding us that we can't take wealth with us when we die. And so it's not something to index index our life with, right? Same kind of thing Jesus said when he was teaching. And then here Paul reminds us that in this present age, this life in which we are now living, our riches are at best uncertain, right? You've got a business, very successful, but there's no certainty that that business is gonna go well. You've got investments. Hopefully you've got some investments that are doing well, but there's no certainty that it's always going to be there. And so what Paul is saying, riches are uncertain, and therefore there's something, something that we do not need to index our hope to. Well, instead, what should we be setting our hope in? And I love it how Paul says this, in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Friends, this line right here is so key. It's so key to the passage, and it's so key to understanding generosity. It's key to understanding what it means to take hold to the life that is really life. When God made our ancestors, Adam and Eve, he placed them in a garden and they were supposed to understand and believe that God had richly blessed them with everything they needed. He had given them everything that they needed for their enjoyment. There's one thing, of course, that he didn't give them, right? There was this one tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, and they were supposed to trust him. That and all the other stuff they had, that God wasn't holding back from them that he had really provided for them and they had everything they needed. One of my favorite theologians is a, a man by the name of Alexander Schmemann. And in one of his books, he talks about how God created Adam and Eve as kind of priests in the gardens. 
And if you don't know, kind of the, the basic task of a priest is to receive God's creation with thanksgiving and, and to offer it up back up to the Lord, right? And so the Eucharistic act is this act. We're receiving Christ and we're offering Christ back up, right? The sacrifice comes from God and we're holding that sacrifice up to God. It's the priestly action, uh, like priest in the Old Testament, receiving from creation and, and giving that back up to the Lord. This was the vocation of Adam. And so we see the sin of thinking that somehow that they could receive a life outside of the life that is receiving from God. Sin, it's the failure to trust God, to believe that God had somehow left something out that he had failed to provide, that he was trying to hold back from them what would truly bring them joy. Sin, there is no way for them to offer the fruit that they had taken back to God. It was in no part of his good provision. It could not be deemed worship. And so they, they doubted God's divine generosity, his benevolent generosity. And they thought that they were taking hold of the life that is really life. But instead, it was just an illusion. Friends, there is no life apart from the life that God, who generously provides for us everything for our enjoyment, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. And I think this will be a huge key between those of us who it's easy to lean into generosity and those of us who are finding it harder. Because <laughs> if I truly believe that everything we have has been provided, everything we need will be provided, and that God is not trying to hold back any joy for us collectively and that all needs will be provided, it changes the way I see what I have, and what it's meant for. So what should redeemed rich folks like us do? Paul gets into it at verse 18. They are to do good. Okay, you're rich, so be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, that they may take hold of the life that is really life. One, redeem rich folks get to be rich in good works. Two, redeemed rich folks need to be generous and ready to share. And Paul here echoes what Jesus said, in doing so we store up treasure in heaven. And being generous, we take hold of the life that is really life. Now, I wanna remind you, of course, hopefully you know this, that for Paul, there is absolutely no way that you could buy your way into heaven, right? <laughs> Salvation isn't something that we purchase. This is all over Paul, so of course, we mustn't confu confuse it here. Friends, we are saved by faith. We are justified by grace. Salvation is God's gift to us. 
And once we have recognized this gift, then we begin to live in the world as redeemed people. And the natural thing for us to do as redeemed people is to invest in the foundation for the future. That is the coming kingdom of God. Generosity is the way that we transfer our assets from this passing kingdom to the future kingdom, which will never pass away. May you take hold of the life that is really life. Before I close this sermon, I want to take a moment to answer a few practical questions that I've heard a few of you ask, and that I'm wondering if some of you might be asking about where we are in the life of our church, and just kind of in general, like, well, wait, a, what does the church actually teach about a few of these things, which maybe we've never uh, specifically um, spoken about? So if, if you don't mind, give me a few moments to speak about a few practical things. One question I've heard asked is, what do we teach about tithing? Do we have to give 10%? Well, let's talk about that. In the Old Testament, the tithe was 10% of your income, and you gave it for two purposes. One purpose was for the priest, to fund the priestly work and that the, the priest can live and the work of the temple can go on, right? So we have to take care of our priest. And then the other reason was to take care of the poor. And God said, hey, there's always gonna be poor among you and I'm gonna provide enough and you're gonna have to provide for them. So I'm gonna give you everything that everybody needs, but it's gonna have to flow from you to other folks. And the tithe is how we're gonna get this done. And so we're gonna take care of the work of the church and the needs of the poor. Now this was required by law, right? The Torah, the instruction, but there was also promises attached to it. And some of you guys will remember in Malachi 3, uh, God is challenging the people to tithe when they weren't tithing. He's like, hey, bring the whole tithe, the whole 10% into the storehouse. And he says, test me in this and see if I'm not going to bless you. If you'll just do it, just try it and see if I won't bless you. So there's all these blessings and it goes on to spell it out. Like you're gonna be blessed abundantly if you'll just do this thing. And then if we fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus, he actually tithes. He criticizes the Pharisees for their, their tithing, but they're neglecting other stuff. And he says, hey, you should have done that other stuff with, without neglecting the tithe, but you should have done the other stuff. But then the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And after the Spirit comes, we never hear people urging about the tithe again. Instead, we see something else. We see a radical generosity. Spirit-filled believers are selling their possessions. Acts 4.34 says this, there was not a needy person among them for as many as owned lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. In this new world that was made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, tithing doesn't seem to be a big topic that people are worried about. We don't have people that are asking, what's the minimum amount that I need to give to the work of the church? The only stories we have are stories about people that are all in with Jesus. We have stories about people that are transferring their assets from this kingdom to the next. And every need is supplied. It's a beautiful picture. 
they're not really so much interested in this question. And so for you, I would say, I'm not legalistic about this. I'm a New Testament Christian. I'm not under the law. I ate pork this morning. I made a ham quiche. I thought it came out pretty good. Some uh, you know, cheese in there, manila with spinach and feta. Um, I'm not under the law. I, I'm living in the freedom of the spirit. And so all I'm asking you, what's it like to live in the freedom of the spirit? And I would just, I'm gonna just guess. I mean, I'm not, no, like no judgment or anything. That as spirit-filled people, we can probably do even better than our really amazing spiritual ancestor before the spirit came, right? Like hopefully we're just like a little bit more notched, like whatever it was God intended us to be with the Holy Spirit living in us and animating us. And so that's my only thought. No one's gonna uh, get legalistic here about it at all. So those, those are my kind of simple thoughts on tithing. Second question that I think is a really important question that we should all ask, especially since we're at a point of great need in our churches, why should I invest in a church plant instead of some other really great ministry or nonprofit? Now, I want you to think right now about some organizations that are doing great work, hopefully here, but maybe even beyond here. But just think of some great organization that's doing really good work that you feel like, hey, that's a worthy cause. Think about it. All right, somebody just name it. Just name a few so we have a, a few in the pot. Throw one in there. Habitat. Whoa, I like that one. You guys are speaking too fast. No, no. Go ahead. IJM, International Justice Ministry. Wow, what an amazing organization. We have someone in our church that works for World Vision. That's a good one. I think about Lazarus. They, they, love, they love on homeless folks in our, our community. There's so many great organizations uh, that we could name. Now, our mother church, Trinity on the West Side is about to turn 20, which is really awesome. It's a really big deal. And I want you to imagine now that we're going back 20 years and, you know, the Lord has blessed you with 50,000 extra dollars in your pocket and you just know the Lord's put it on your heart to give it somewhere to something and you're praying about where do I give it to. And I want you to imagine that you're thinking about one of those really great organizations either here in Atlanta or IJM in DC or wherever it is, that's going to be a huge blessing. Or you're thinking about, I can give this money to this new startup church that is starting, Trinity Westside. Both would be a really great option, right? If you chose option A, chances are they would use that money in that year, and it would go to helping people and causes that are really important to us, and we would all cheer it on. But it turns out if you gave to option B, a church that is just getting started, doesn't have a ton of money to cover its needs, it actually would have turned out into the gift that keeps on giving, wouldn't it have? I emailed Cher Hines, the accountant at the West Side, who does our accountant, by the way, she's awesome. She's the funnest accountant I've ever met. Uh, maybe they're all fun, I just imagine they weren't, but uh, she's incredible. And I, I said, Cher, I don't know how far back you go in the systems, if the com computer program changed, but could you just let me know how much uh, Trinity has given in the last five years, so Trinity West has given the last five years to these kind of organizations like IJM, like how much have they given to mission and, and to helping like other nonprofits and ministries? So how much have they given outside the church? And that number was 2,100,000 and some change for the last five years. So that's as far back as she could go. 
So they've given a little over 2 million in the last five years. Let's imagine the next, let's imagine for the 15 years before that, all they gave was half that. Maybe all they gave was a million. So that's around 3 million. And so I want you to think about that. You've got 50,000 to invest. You can give it into somewhere where it's gonna be used up in that time, or I can give it to a church plant, which is gonna year in and year out give to these organizations. No, Trinity is only 20 years old. I mean, it is 20 years old, which is a big deal. That's kind of like a dinosaur in church plant age. But it's a healthy church. It's a great church. I would imagine they're gonna go for another 20. How many millions are they gonna go, right? How many, so if this five, the last five they did, let's just, you know, two, two, two. That's a lot of money given into missions, folks. But we haven't actually even counted the money that would have come from Redeemer, their church plant, or from uh, Eastside, what we now call Emmanuel. We haven't even counted what we've given here at Trinity Northside, which this year I think we'll have given uh, over $60,000 to mission. And so it's a gift that grows and grows and grows. And of course, we're talking in dollar figures, but it would be impossible to quantify the real impact beyond those dollar figures, right? Even the work of the church itself, the lives that are changed, the acts of charity that were inspired by the preaching, marriages that are healed through the counseling, parents that are raising better parents, I mean, better children because of the wisdom that they're learning and the training that they're getting. The birthing and sustaining of nonprofits like Lazarus that cares for folks experiencing homelessness. If we look at all the church does, it becomes impossible to actually quantify the impact it has on the life of the city of Atlanta. It would just be really hard to do. I mean, we could get some economists in here like Malcolm Gladwell or something, right? Could try to figure out the net shalom, the net goodness the net peace that is brought about, all I'm trying to remind you guys is that it's huge. The impact that a church plant can make is huge. And yes, we care about all those other organizations. And yes, we want to plant churches and we want to fund IJM and all the justice and all the feeding and we want to do it all. We met this week with a local nonprofit. Um, I won't say the name because, you know, we didn't sealed the deal yet, but we're both very interested uh, with ostensibly little reservation of working together. And this nonprofit works with Latino immigrant youth and they provide them with a wonderful summer care where not only are they learning and catching up on things they didn't learn, but they're just, it's just like a fun and a happy and a joyous place to be. And you know, meals are served. And so they're very well cared for in the summers. And then in the fall, there are things like literacy programs where they're helping them get their reading up. And it's very holistic. There's classes for parents, classes that parents actually want to take, that they know they need. Hey, I want a class on this. And it is something that is already happening in other communities, not right now in Chambly, but it is something that brings um, wholeness and flourishing to families that are in need. And so we're kind of dreaming about how we can work together in this new building. And if we can work it out, I'm super happy for them just to be in our building all week and do the stuff that they need to do, right? Because that's what we want to do. Like we care about those very same people. And so think about it, even in like investing in a church like ours, 
it's as if you're giving these folks like $10,000 a month in free rent. Well, that's a lot of money. That's like $120,000 a year. Multiply that for however many years there would be. You get what I'm trying to say? You, if we ask the question, why invest in a church plant? What I'm trying to say is there's big dividends in investing in a church plant. I, I had the privilege this week of also being in another meeting with clergy leaders uh, from the city of Brookhaven and the chief of police was there and the city manager of, of Brookhaven was there. And he said to us, uh, I think there should, we have three branches of government, but I think we should have a fourth. And the fourth should be churches and nonprofits. And what he meant by that is that the church does so much to care for people and to triage nonprofits and, and to organize in the community that if we didn't exist, it would be so much more expensive to run government and care for the people. And so I'm just reminding you, all those things we care about, and um, that's the reason, um, a big reason of why we're in here. So first, do we need to tithe? Three was why a church plant over some other organization? And then once I know, okay, yeah, I probably do wanna invest in a church plant, but why do we need to invest that money into a building? Like, is there something else that we could do with our money, right? That'd be a question I'd be asking, why? A building, aren't we just really about people? And like, don't we have people here and discipleship and outreach and mission? And I would say, yes, you're definitely right. And I would say that the building is going to help do what we care most. And those are things like worship, disciple making, fellowship, and outreach. So let's talk about worship. Can't we do it anywhere? Like, can we worship here? Can we worship in a field? Absolutely. Um, I've got an anniversary coming up this, this week, um, probably like 12 years, something like that, 11, something, 14. We've been married for a long time. And so um, once you have like over two kids, you just start to lose track. But anyway, we have something planned. Like we're going to do something that's going to be amazing. Um, what are we talking about? Oh, so anniversary. <laughs> Sorry. I feel like it's going the wrong way. I already just turned on me, all right? Um, <laughs> been a long week, guys. So um, we're having our anniversary. And so anniversaries are great. Sometimes you do something nice, right? Like you eat a nice meal. And so imagine we have a really great meal. Think about the most nicest meal you can think of. Maybe it's a steak dinner that you like, a really nice glass of wine. Now imagine we take that wonderful steak and we put it on a, a really great styrofoam plate. And then we pour that really nice wine into just, you know, like a nice plastic cup. Uh, maybe we take a sippy cup without the uh, top on it or whatever. And we just have that really nice meal together, right? And we enjoy it on just like a plastic table and some foliage because it just doesn't matter, right? Because it's all about people. It's just all about us, right? And so it, don't worry about that other stuff, right? And so of course, no, you'd be like, no, John, that doesn't sound like a good evening, right? Like we want to do something a little bit nicer. Like there's a time for a feast. There's a time to enjoy a nice meal. You need to do that in a certain way. And it, it actually matters what it's like, like the thing that we're eating out of, like it actually matters, like we need it to kind of be nice. And so, of course, the analogy that I'm getting at is we throw a feast here every Sunday. It's the most important meal of my week is the meal that I receive here, this sacred, mysterious meal that we receive together. And I want my kids to know, and I want everyone else to know that this meal is like no other. And of course, we could celebrate it in any other way, but we want to celebrate in a place that is beautiful. And I believe uh, the beautiful setting that we are uh, working on is going to enhance our sense of what is happening as we worship. 
And then what about all the other stuff, like the disciple making stuff, the people stuff? And I'll just be honest with you, that's what I'm here for. Like my wife and I, we met in a campus ministry and we really formed in a campus ministry. And if you know anything about the best campus ministries, they're extremely communal. Folks are living together. They're studying the Bible together in their dorms. They're, they're very outreach oriented, very easy to just invite people in. And they're very good at kind of disciple making, even like one-on-one, kind of very intentional sharing your faith, giving your faith together. And that's just my heart. Like, that's just what I want to see flow out of this table into the world. Like, that's, to me, the thing that we should be doing. And so why do we need a building? Somebody created a beautiful analogy, and they wrote a book about it, called The Trellis and the Vine. So the trellis is the thing that the vine grows up, right? And so if you think about the vine, the vine is the stuff that gives life. Like, Jesus is the vine, right? And so being engrafted into the vine, that kind of organic people, discipleship kind of thing, that's the life of the church. Like the vine is what we're here for. The trellis is just, it's just the programming. The trellis is, is the building. It's the place where we can do the thing so that the vine can grow up. Without the trellis, the vine actually doesn't grow very, very well. You get what I'm saying? I'm not saying that we're all about the trellis and we're going to like worship the trellis. No, like we're here to make disciples. We're here for people, but it's the, it's the space that's going to enable us to do these things better, to make disciples, to fellowship better, to outreach, all of these organic, spirit-filled things that we're called to do. All right, so next week, we're going to be kicking off a sermon series where we're going to be talking about our new name and our renewed vision, and I encourage you to be here. If you're not able to be here, I encourage you to tune in uh, for Pajama Church, as some of our parishioners call it, and I won't. They're in that section, but I won't say their names. So if you do, even if you have to do pajama church, join us, because it's kind of going to be an important couple of weeks. And we're going to be inviting you in this season uh, to join us. Uh, It's going to be a season of increased generosity as we prepare to fund the ministry uh, that God is calling us to. So God grant us to take hold of the life that is really life. Make us like you people with generous hearts that give themselves for the sake of others. Amen.